So we will begin with looking at, um, and this is a subcategory of epistemology. Now epistemology is basically the study of truth, which is like, okay, well isn't that like all of philosophy? Yes, but epistemology is how we know. So how do we know the truth? How do we know? And one of the theories, or you know, one of the theories within epistemology, the theories of truth, how we know it, what is true, is called correspondence. Okay? Correspondence. Now there are other theories like coherence, and then there's pragmatism, and then there's other ones that are named after various philosophers. Now the reason I'm bringing up correspondence is because Christianity, at its core, uses or employs by its virtue, a correspondence theory of truth. Okay, So, what this means is that we determine truth based on an external objective source. And we would generally call that the Bible. Going beyond that, we'd say the Bible's true because God is the source of the Bible, and God is the source of all knowledge and truth. Okay, So, we can say that we have true knowledge, that we know the truth about anything, when our knowledge corresponds with God's knowledge. Now the question obviously is, well how do we know what God knows? Well, He gave us His Word. Now there's not every possible permutation of information in Scripture that would, like, Scripture doesn't talk about computer science, right? Things like that. So we say, well what does God think about that? particular area. Well, A, he obviously didn't see it necessary to, to communicate on that. And B, we can know in a fundamental sense what he would say about those things based on the rest of the information in Scripture. So, for example, um, in Scripture, Christ and the prophets and different figures throughout Scripture assume certain things about reality. And they use their senses, they use logic, they use things like that. And so from that, we can infer that we can use those things as well. So if Christ is using logic, we can say we can use logic as well. If Christ is, is um, accepting the reliability of his senses to tell him that you know, a, a mustard seed is actually a mustard seed, then we can too. So what we're doing there is we're inferring from what Christ is doing, from what the, author, the authors of Scripture are communicating to us, that we can know the truth when that information corresponds to what God knows. So in other words, this pen, I can say that this pen is black, that it makes the black color on the board, when God also understands it to do the same thing. So because God understands this thing to make a black mark on the board, and I perceive it the same way, we say my belief corresponds to what God's essentially belief, or what God knows it to do. Does that make sense? So that is what is known as correspondence. Well, that actually, if we look at what we've been looking at, fits very succinctly within this model of theomorphism, of God creating from his character and then emanating out 
and that, that character emanating out into all of his creation. So we can say that his knowledge is now emanating out into the world. He's the source of all wisdom and truth. And so we can know the truth when it corresponds, or we know the truth when it corresponds to what he believes and he knows, just like we know that, or, or rather we express his character when we love as he loved, right? when we fulfill the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're doing that because that command corresponds, if you will, to God's character. Does that make sense? So it's all coming back to the covenant within the Trinity. So covenant or Trinity or Lordship, all these themes are the central themes of Scripture. And that is a broad, huge, 50,000-foot view of how do we know what is true in this world based on Scripture being our source of truth, based on God being the author of Scripture, being the source of all truth and knowledge. That's the, the formal way of looking at it. So if you wanted to investigate more into that, this is the word you can start with. So if you type in correspondence theory of truth, you've started the rabbit trail. And it's a long one. It's a very long one. I was reading some... Uh, stuff this morning on co correspondence and coherence, and I was just like, oh, never mind, I'm not even <laughs> I was like, I don't have enough brain cells right now to absorb this, let alone communicate it. All right. So, uh, the important part from this is that we experience, or the covenants that God makes with us, and that is us as his chosen people, are a result of the archetypal covenant. So we can think of the covenant within the Trinity as the archetypal or prototype covenant. That is, all other covenants are built from that. And that is, in fact, the covenant that Christ desires to bring us back into. We are Christ has come to actually bring us back into that relationship. Or, um, or rather bring us into that relationship fully for the first time. And we read this from actually John chapter 17. So I will read John chapter 17 verses 24 through 26. And Christ states this uh, very clearly. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have had, excuse me, the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Christ is saying there that the love that he's received from the Father. He wants to bring his chosen people into that love, just as he has experienced it. So there is Christ <coughs> telling us, telling the church, telling the disciples, exactly what his end goal is, which is to bring us into fellowship with the triune God. So we aren't sort of left in this sub, ultimately, in eternity, when all is settled. We are not left in this uh, sort of sub-covenant. We are brought into the fullness of the original archetypal covenant. 
where we commune and fellowship with the Trinity, um, just as they had communion for, for eternity. Okay. Now, we're using terms, uh, and one of the terms obviously is a very dubious term, especially when you look at the history of the word love. Laura will know this, that love in Greek and, and Hebrew has very many different permutations and it can depend on how you're using it, when you're using it, and things like that. Our language doesn't do a very good job because we have one word for love. It's just love. So we can love ice cream and we can love the Lord. Well, those are two very different ideas of love, right? Um, the definition of love that we're using here, again, you can probably guess based on the, the structure that we're creating here, is that this is the love that expresses the same type of love that the inner, that the Trinity expressed to one another. So, we love God when we're fully devoted to Him. So this is where the command of uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 5, it says, love the Lord your God. What is being communicated there is being fully devoted to bless and glorify the Godhead. So being fully devoted to obey uh, God's commands and to bless and glorify Him. So our love is the same thing. So if, if God the Father is devoted to the Son to bless and glorify the Son, and the Son is devoted to the Holy Spirit to bless and glorify the Holy Spirit, then our love should emanate that exact same characteristic. So we are called to be devoted to God and to seek to bless and glorify Him in all that we do. And then, what does Christ do? Is He adds on to that another um, category, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is obviously the ultimate emanation, expression of the love that we've received. And this is precisely what Christ does. He doesn't simply come and love the Father by being obedient to the Father. He then also loves us by extending that to us. We are his neighbor, if you will. We are, his, we are strangers to him before he brings us into covenant with him. And so Christ is doing the very thing that he learned from the Father, and now we are learning to love from Christ. So we can see how this there's that hierarchical, federal headship, covenantal trickle-down effect. Trickling down. I was talking to um, Julia uh, last night about how, um, you know, as you do when you're trying to raise children and things like that. Who, who are they actually listening to? Are they listening to Julia or are they actually listening to me through Julia? Well, she needed that clarification that's like, no, no, they're obeying me through you. They're not just obeying you, and Dad just happens to show up every once in a while because I'm gone working or whatever. And she needed that reminder that, oh, there is an authority above me who's not only above me to support me, but also there to hand out the discipline when it needs to be handed out. And so this is very much in line with what we're talking about here, is that Christ learned from the Father, and then now Christ teaches us, so we learn from Christ, and then us as fathers, us as leaders, we then emanate that same thing down through us. And this is what Mike has talked about, is sphere sovereignty, right? That notion of headship and federal headship. God has created it this way. And it is a trickle-down effect of 
this type of love, of devotion to bless and glorify. Devotion to bless and glorify. And Christ echoes this very same thing. Um, he echoes the, the great commandment from Deuteronomy 6 in Matthew chapter 22, uh, 34 and 40. He says, But when the Pharisees heard that, they had, um, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment? Uh, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love the na your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet, prophets. So Christ says, on these two things is built all the law and the prophets. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So to be devoted to him, to bless and glorify. And to love your neighbor as yourself. The loving your neighbor as yourself uh, is probably the most difficult one. Uh, the joke is that if you were given the opportunity between, or the choice between the 600 and some laws in the Old Testament versus loving your neighbor as yourself, you'd probably just pick the 600, right? Because <laughs> bathing at the certain time of the week and eating certain food is a little bit easier than actually loving your neighbor sometimes. So, uh, but this is the command that we're given. They sum up the obligations, our obligations, under the covenant that we are in with Christ. Um, so the reason that Christ says that these things sum up the law and the prophets is because the law and the prophets are the binding legal commitment to the covenant. So this is why Christ doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. So the law keeping its legality, its binding nature. Christ is saying these things are bound, uh, they, excuse me, they fulfill the law and they are the fullness and culmination of the law. So the covenant that we're brought into in which this great commandment is our main command is now still given the same legal formality, the same legal commitment um, that the law and the prophets held under the Old Testament. So now it's a formal commitment of mutual love. It's a formal commitment of Trinitarian love. So now we've transcended the law through Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. Yet the law, in this sense, in the great commandment, is still binding on us. So this is where we still have a legal commitment to obeying Christ. And we can see this again in the covenant of marriage. This is where the covenant of marriage is a, a very big blessing that God has given us to teach us many things about his character. So, obviously, marriage is built on love, right? It's built on a feeling, mainly. That's sort of the first thing that drives us to that. But that's not all that we have. Now, the world today tries to tell us that, yes, okay, you can be in a faithful, monogamous relationship and not have any legal binding whatsoever. That's what they want to do. They just want to have, okay, you have the feeling, you're good to go. And we see this creeping into Christianity where uh, there are churches who have no problem with 
a couple who's dating, who's living together, and uh, essentially they're acting like a married couple, but they've gone through no formal ceremony, no legal ceremony, to actually state that yes, they are in fact married. And the um, there is a there is a huge importance to the legality of making the marriage covenant an actual legitimate legal ceremony. So the legality of the covenant covenant actually helps to secure and bind the couple together. So it doesn't detract from the love. I don't think there's any of us in here who are married who would say our marriage license is somehow detracts from the love that we have for one another. If anything, it's designed as God uh, designed government and if government is working properly, these things are supposed to be hedges of protection around those covenants, around these institutions. And the reason for that is that we would say, if a man professes to love a woman, but he refuses to assume the legal obligations of marriage, if he refuses to assume those legal obligations, we would very much doubt how much he loves that woman, or how much he professes to love that woman. So, and I would say rightfully so. If you see a man who's uh, been with a woman for decades or years, and they just, he just has no desire to get married, he's refusing to assume or take on that legal responsibility of actually declaring, yes, I take responsibility of, over this person. And so we have a, a very good cause to doubt how much he actually loves that individual. So the same thing applies then. We can take that lesson to ourselves. If there was no covenant and it was just purely based on how we felt about God and how we loved God internally and there was no legal obligation, there was no ceremony that we went through, there was no sign and seal of the covenant, then we would have room to doubt our assurance. If it was just up to our emotions, well, there are a lot of days where my emotions do not glorify God, right? And if that's the measure of us being united to God, if that's how we know we're united and, and kept in Him, then we essentially have very, very little assurance. This is why our sign and seal is something that's done publicly. Baptism is done publicly. It's something that we can then look back to. We can confer with our fellow saints. Um, now, it, it is interesting how we've lost a little bit of this because when I was baptized, I, my mom and dad were there. Yeah. Yes, they were there. Um, but I think that was it. So uh, of, of the people, I mean, there were other people there, but I don't know anybody else who was there. I don't have communication with anybody else who was there. So when my parents go to glory, who's there to vouch that I was actually baptized? Well, very few people. Where in the, in the church, in the early church, this wasn't as big of an issue because baptisms were very public. They were very um, held in high honor at that time. And uh, so it was a little bit easier to keep track of, of who was actually baptized because it was like, well, we were all there, right? In individual communities. There wasn't sort of that mixture that we experience today. Uh, yeah, but uh, we enter into the covenant uh, through baptism and it's through that then that we have an external source of confirmation, ex external source of assurance that says despite how you necessarily feel about it, there is this now legal binding ceremony that took place that Christ recognizes 
It's the, it's the marriage license, if you will, into, our, into the covenant with Christ. And that then gives us assurance. Okay. Any questions? Yes. This also relates to uh, the adoption situation, in the Old, especially the Old Testament, or, or even with Jesus. It was very complicated, and there was, I believe, seven witnesses and all kinds of things that had to go on. Yep. To have a legal adoption. Yep. Yep. No, that's absolutely true. So there's the. Is everyone familiar with how adoption was sort of uh, done in the Old Testament and in the first century? Um, so at that time, it was a very, very big deal. It was a very difficult thing to do, actually, under the Roman culture. And this is the the idea is that. Um, and it's to this day we still do this. It's a legal procedure. These people are, like Julia, when she was adopted, she was legally brought into the family of the, um, I don't remember their last name. <laughs> yeah. Davenport. Davenports, that's right. She was legally she was legally made a Davenport. I don't know, her last name's Leslie, that's all I can she was legally made a Davenport, and so she has a birth certificate that says Davenport on it. She has a, she had a driver's license and a passport that has Davenport on it. So that's the legal framework in which that was secured. It wasn't just well, our parent, her parent, her adopted parents chose her and loved her, and that was good to go. No, the state, the government, the federal head, if you will, came in and said there needs to be a formal legal ceremony, a formal legal document that states that this is this this has actually happened, and that's what happened in the um, in the uh, Roman culture. But it was ramped up essentially seven times. It required seven witnesses um, all to agree and put their seals on a scroll that said, yes, in fact, um, this is taking place, which there's a lot of symbolism there that's going on in when you read the book of Revelation and you understand how adoption took place under Roman culture and what Christ is doing when he's opening the seals of the scroll. They're all his seals. They're not other people's seals. He's only able to open them because he's already died, because it's his will and testament. So essentially, any legal binding document, whether it's a test, will and testament, or adoption papers, required these seven witnesses. Um, and the, the idea is that Christ is the only one who's able to witness to himself. So he, he, he seals it seven times and then opens it. So that's, a whole, that's a whole other typological tangent um, that we don't need to get into. So... So we would say that the legal ceremony doesn't at all detract from the mutual love that's experienced within these covenants. So the, our baptism only stands to reinforce and give us assurance that we are in Christ. So we no longer have to just rely on our emotions. Uh, now I would like to... Uh, let's see, I have... Oh, okay. So, um, the the fact that we can, or that we are called to love God despite our emotions, I think goes to the fact that, uh, or rather, when we 
love God despite our emotions, we are actually exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? So we are not simply creatures that are called uh, merely through an emotion of love God. That's it. And the reason for that is, is uh, or we can see that through Scripture. And this is why sometimes there's a tension between um, Paul and sort of that no, the teachings of uh, grace and God's grace and mercy. And then we come and we read passages like James, <clears throat> where it says essentially, show me your works and I will, I will show you your faith. Well, how do we reconcile those two? So if we turn to James 2, verses 14 through 18, James 2, verses 14 through 18, we're going to look a little bit about how our obedience, despite our feelings, actually is an evidence of the Holy Spirit working within us. So this is how God has created um, and given us His Spirit, so that despite how we feel about Him, despite if we don't feel very loving, if you will. We are still faithful in obedience. So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them anything they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So obviously James is saying there that we can show our love, we can show our faith in God, our love for God, by our works. And we experience this on a daily basis. Again, going back to the marriage covenant. There are many, many, many times that we love our spouse and we honor them and we obey them and we submit to them, mutual submission even, uh, when we don't feel like it. And the point is there, we all know, that is actually loving that person. So loving that person despite how you necessarily feel is actually expressing a higher degree of love. It's more loving when you act that way in that moment. So we don't merely rely on this emotion to serve God. But when that is not there, that is where the Holy Spirit comes along and helps us to obey. And that is the, not only the evidence of the Holy Spirit, but that is how we can then see our faith being worked out. So the works of our faith are seen when we act in that way, when we obey God, when we obey His commands, when we're loyal and devoted to His Word, and we seek to bless and glorify Him above ourselves, that is then when we start to see uh, the, the work of our faith, the works of our faith begin to arise. Okay. So would you say that we're, we're actually loving Him more yeah. than we're obeying when we don't want to? Yes. And the, and the reason why we're obeying despite how we feel is because of the Holy Spirit. That's not a natural thing to do. That is not a natural... Man in his sinful nature doesn't do that. Right. So that's why I'd say if you, if you struggle with 
the emotion, if you struggle with desiring to please God, I'd say, well, that, that's okay. Are you still being obedient? Right? This is that idea of you may, have, you may be struggling with sin, but are you exhibiting true repentance? Are you exhibiting a broken and contrite heart? Well, then you, you, despite, if you will, despite your actual actions, you're still exhibiting the right behaviors. You're still exhibiting the right characteristics. And that is, we, we can't do that on our own. The scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit is what comes along and helps us and leads us to be able to do that. Okay, so having, that's essentially the nature of the covenant, nature of God's covenant with mankind. So now we're going to start, the rest of the classes, we're going to be looking at uh, sort of individual particular covenants throughout scripture. So let's see how much time we got. Okay, probably going to get to one here. Um, now there's various different ways to break this down. Uh, the author here does something very clever. He, he identifies six sub-covenants before the new covenant. And then he actually divides those by two. So what we have is we have two repeating, uh, two repeating co- uh, uh, um, patterns. Patterns, yeah. Two groups of three, okay? And those groups of three are the uh, people probably heard this. The idea of priest, king, and prophet. And then, so, so the idea is that there's the first three covenants follow the structure of God instituting priesthood, God instituting king, and then God instituting the office of prophet. So these are the three offices of Christ that Christ fulfills, priest, king, and prophet. And so what we'll see here is that Adam is the first priest. Noah is uh, the, the Noahic covenant, institutes the role of judging or judgment, so being a, a, essentially a king who can determine what is right and wrong. And then prophet is with Abraham. Abraham is given the promise that his seed will bring about salvation, and that the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so that institutes God's prophecy, his divine, essentially, plan through a particular group of people. And then later on, we have uh, other characters. Who, let's see, real quick. Then you have Moses, which is the second priest. Uh, the second king is David. And then the second prophetic covenant is what he calls the restoration covenant. Okay. So that's how this author has broken this down as far as how covenants are structured through the Old Testament. So we're going to look first at the Adamic covenant or the covenant that God made with Adam. Now, the interesting thing about the Adamic, it's kind of hard to say that word. I want to say Adamic, but that's not right. <laughs> Adamic, Adamic, Adamic. The Adamic covenant is that this is one that's not explicitly named in Genesis. It doesn't, it doesn't call it the Adamic covenant. And it doesn't necessarily say that God made a covenant or cut a covenant with Adam. But it's very clear that based on how God is creating Adam and, and relating to him, that this is a covenantal relationship. 
So God makes a covenant with Adam. Adam is created as the vice regent and steward over all creation. So God places him in the garden to do what? To tend and steward the garden, to look over all of creation. That's Adam's purpose. Not only to, uh, to steward the garden, but to be fruitful and multiply. So he was to essentially not only ensure the garden was fruitful, but then be fruitful himself. So that's his first uh, command. And he's to take dominion over the earth. So taking dominion over the earth means stewarding the earth, stewarding the garden, and therefore also stewarding his uh, progeny, his children. And God gives him one law, the single law, which we all know, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he, he rebels, he breaks that single, uh, single law, therefore breaking the covenant between him and God. Now the penalty for Adam breaking the covenant was death. Not only ceremonial and covenantal death, but physical death. Now the interesting thing here, and this is the pattern that we begin seeing, is Adam is created, brought into covenant. Uh, God is faithful to the covenant. Man, Adam, breaks the covenant, deserving the due penalty of that covenant. And then immediately what happens is God then shows grace and mercy. So Adam should have been wiped out. He should have been killed in that instant. But what we see is that God, in fact, immediately shows grace and mercy towards him by not killing him immediately. And what God actually has to do, again, this is where we would say Adam is, uh, through Adam, God is instituting the priestly order, is that instead of killing Adam, which was what should have happened, what did God do? To cover their nakedness, he then kills the animals who Adam was set over to protect and steward to now take the place of Adam to cover Adam's nakedness, to essentially cover Adam's sin. And now Adam becomes the first priest to all creation. And he teaches his children, we know by chapter 4 in Genesis, that he's already taught Cain and Abel to give sacrifices to the Lord. And it says that God accepts the blood sacrifice. Right? He doesn't accept um, Cain's sacrifice because it didn't involve an animal, essentially. Right? Um, but there's the pattern. God institutes covenant. Man breaks the covenant. God shows mercy and then extends or renews that covenant. Okay? So covenant is cut and created. Mankind breaks that covenant. God then shows mercy by extending and renewing that covenant with him. And as we will see, he is instituting these offices as these covenants go on. So he institutes first the office of priest. And Adam goes on and teaches and uh, his children and, and future generations that they're to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And we see this throughout Genesis that these people are offering sacrifices. Noah knows to offer sacrifices. That's why he brings seven of each clean animal onto the ark, because not only do they need to eat, but he needs to offer sacrifices before and after, or during and after, their journey on the ark. So this idea, this notion of the priestly order is begun with Adam. So Adam is the not only, of course, the first Adam, but he's the first priest. 
Uh, and despite being separated from God, even though he deserved immediate death and punishment, um, they're actually still allowed to then go and fulfill certain aspects of their purpose, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And they do that, right? And in fact, Eve, Eve isn't cut off completely either because she's promised that her seed, the seed from the woman, will eventually bring salvation and crush the head of the serpent. So Satan, who is the one who tricked them, will eventually be destroyed and, and defeated by the seed of Eve. So despite their failure, despite their rebellion against God's uh, covenant, they are yet again shown mercy and grace. And God extends the covenant going forward. And that's the pattern we see. So if we go to the uh, second one, which is in our order, which is the Noahic covenant, uh, he is seen as the first king. Yeah, we'll have to end with this. Um, so Noah obviously isn't made a king over creation, but he is given a particular command that adds to the priestly order that was established through Adam. So Noah is still offering sacrifices that tradition has carried on. But after the flood, Noah is given another command, another prerogative. And that's from Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So there God is instituting capital punishment. If you murder someone, if you spill someone's blood, your blood will be spilled by other men. And that is, if we think about essentially what is the role of a king, the role of a king is to enforce and carry out the law, to punish those who disobey the law. So we can see by Noah, we have a, uh, the prototype or the archetypal priestly system in place. And then Noah is where we see the, uh, um, the institution of man being able to judge other, man, other men according to God's law, according to God's, um, what God knows to be right. And uh, we will see next week that the office of prophet is instituted through the Abrahamic covenant. So and then we'll carry on. Any questions? That's a lot, I know. Very good. Thank you. Yep.